Welcome to International Tax Bites. This is a series of podcasts about issues and concepts in international taxation. In this episode, we will be talking about personal tax residence, what it is, how you work out which one you've got, and what it means for you. I'm Graham Jackson. I'm an English and Gibraltar solicitor who works with Hassan's international law firm in Gibraltar. And I will be talking to Harriet Brown, a Jersey and English barrister who works with Old Square Tax Chambers in London. We both specialise in international taxation. Of course, this is a conversation and not a substitute for advice in the relevant jurisdiction. We hope you enjoy. So, Harriet, it's episode two. Um... Today we're going to talk, I think, about a personal tax residence in contrast to the corporate tax residence that we talked about last week. And we were saying just before we started that there's actually quite a lot of overlap between the two things in terms of concepts. Um, absolutely, there is. And so to start with, the reason why tax residence is important to, to you as an individual is exactly the same reason as it's important to a company, and that is because it is one of the ways that countries, jurisdictions decide whether or not you're going to be subject to tax. And indeed, it's one of the most common ones. So generally, to recap, most countries or a lot of countries will tax the worldwide income of their residents. So it's very important because if you are a resident somewhere, then all of your income, whether it comes from that jurisdiction or another jurisdiction on the other side of the world, might well be taxable in that jurisdiction. Okay, so the base position is that where you live, you pay tax on everything you earn. And if you earn money in another country where you don't live, you will pay tax in that country because that's where it comes from. And then you'll have to work out which country ultimately has the taxing rights. And that's what we're going to talk about later with treaties. That's absolutely right. And there are some exceptions to some countries. And again, I think we covered this in, in the last last yep. talk. Uh, there are some countries that don't use a residence base of taxation, including, I think I'm right, Gibraltar. But for individuals, um, we do. We do use it. For individuals, you do. Yeah. So for individuals, it's very common. The other big exception is the US. And while the US will tax their residents on their worldwide income, they also um, they also uh, tax their citizens on worldwide income as well. Yeah, so you, you can never shake it off without paying that exit tax and, and taking the pain of going through that. Um, okay, so let's talk about uh, where we're both qualified, first of all, and, and so use that as an example of, um, of a highly complex residence test, uh, UK. UK, obviously, for this purpose, is a unified jurisdiction. It's not Scotland, England, or, uh, and, and Northern Ireland. It's a single unified jurisdiction, isn't it, for this purpose? The same test applies in all of the jurisdictions of the UK. So while it's maybe not quite technically accurate to call it a UK SRT, the SRT is the same in all parts of the UK. Okay, cool. And because I think Scotland's got a 1% difference on its income tax rate, hasn't it? So Something like that. <laughs> it's been a long time since I've lived in the UK. But the, the UK statutory residence test, or SRT, it's, um, it's quite a complex thing. And as I understand it, it's, it's essentially a flowchart, a series of tests for identifying whether you are automatically overseas resident, that's outside the UK, automatically resident in the UK. And then there's a fallback test for the grey areas where you don't quite meet either of the two automatic ones. Is that correct? 
that's absolutely right. And so as a really basic introduction, if you spend more than 183 days in the UK, you will be a UK resident. Um, 183 days crops up quite a lot in the context of residence, and that is because it is half a year in days, basically. <laughs> yeah. But then if you but then if you're you know, to be automatic overseas, I think you have a, like if it's, if it's less than 15 days in the UK. Yes, that will automatically render you not UK resident. Um, and, and if you work full time over you overseas. Uh, yes. On, on some on, with, with some modifications, this is a very complex test and we're trying to give a summary that obviously the, a complex the, test, but yes, no, no substitute for full and detailed advice. Um, <laughs> so so basically what we need to understand is that for the UK, you, you are first of all, they first of all look at are you overseas resident, then they look at are you resident in the UK, and then they look at are you tied to the UK and those sufficient ties test is Exactly. Yes. Then, so if you're not, if you don't fall within either of the automatic tests, you're going to be looking at the sufficient ties tests. Um, these, this just gets ridiculously complicated for something which one would hope would be relatively straightforward because it is so fundamental. Um, but what ties qualify you? What ties are relevant depends on where you are resident in the three preceding tax years. Um, so if you weren't UK resident in any of the three tax years, you're looking at four ties, a family tie, an accommodation tie, a work tie, and a 90-day tie. Right. Um, these, if you, if, if you think about the titles of those, they pretty much describe in brief what you're going to be look at, looking at, though the underlying rules can get really complicated. So a family tie looks at where your close family are spouses, things like that. An accommodation tie looks at if you, whether or not you have available accommodation, but the accommodation tie can actually get quite complicated because the accommodation, um, the accommodation tie can actually get quite complicated because it depends on where you have property and what you have access to and how many days and bits what of is a home. Um, all those very woolly concepts, um, and, I, and I think it's worth understanding that sufficient ties test is the is the backstop, isn't it? So it's it has to be woolly, otherwise it would not do its job. Um, yes, exactly. A lot of the time, um, the way that when I take this right back down to basics, I often say residence is sort of a way of determining where you belong because people generally accept that they should pay tax where they belong. Mm -hmm. um, and so you do at base get to some quite woolly stuff. So the UK accepts that if you spend 183 days or more in the UK, you belong there. That's 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 cut and dried. Or if you spend fewer than 15 days, you don't really belong here. Um, and therefore, in between, we need to refine it down. All of these factors, various different tests. So I think the reason that we the reason that we picked the UK SRT as our starting point, other than it's just you know we're both familiar with it, <laughs> is because it shows that the complexity of some residence tests around the world. And we're going to go on, aren't we, to look at a, a few examples of other tests, uh, which obviously we're not qualified in these countries, but just to give you some some informational um, examples. So to to understand residence is important for people who live within a country because it's not always the same it's not just simply 183 days there are always backstop provisions that catch things and you could easily end up resident in several different jurisdictions that's absolutely right and that that's that's a function of 
of several things, but primarily the fact that residence tests are different around the world. And they, and also, um, you do not have to be sort of somebody who lives solely in one place to be resident there. It's a much broader concept than that, uh, inevitably, because it um, generally confers taxing rights on the government, taxing rights on the government of the place you're in. Exactly. And I think it's very, very important for those because something that I run into on a daily, but not necessarily on a daily basis, but on a, a regularly run into is that non-technical people um, who are essentially normal human beings who don't who don't worry about this these things on a daily basis. It seems difficult for people to grasp that you cannot it, registration is not the point. So people will say to me entirely innocently they're not they're not up to anything but they will say oh I'm not resident in such and such a country I'm not registered there like, that's that's not the test the test is are you there do you meet the test as it is and the test is never in my experience have you got your registration papers in order um so no and that's that's why I sort of always describe it as trying to work out where you belong sort of because it, it does encompass, as you say, that these factors like how much time you spend there is one of them, but where your family are, where you, where you live, where you can live, where you work. These are all things that sort of make you belong in a place, as it were. Yes. And, 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 and I think it's um, another thing that people say is, oh, I will take residency and so and so. No, you don't take residence anywhere. You just have it. It happens to you by the number of days that you spend in a country. Um, so I think that's a, that's a consensual issue that it's not not always our choice um, that we that we have one or the other residency. So um, that that basically covers the ground of the SRT because what we don't want to do is go into the into the fine detail of it. The basic structure is these three hurdles, and you stop when you when you get a tick one way or the other. If you're if you're overseas resident, you stop thinking. If you're a UK resident after that, you, you stop thinking and then finally you move on to sufficient ties to hoover up the grey areas. I think it might be quite useful just to touch base on what was the position before the SRT, because it's, you know, in, in legal terms, it's quite a, a novel um, a novel thing, the SRT. And I think that anybody who dealt with the previous common law residence test will tell you that it's complicated, but it's better. Yes. So prior to the SRT, residence was determined tax residence because of course you residence is still a relevant concept for some other legal purposes so prior to there being a statutory residence test for tax residents you basically had to decide it based on the case law and there was um, an awful lot of case law some of it not from tax cases because it, this was a general law concept um, and ultimately what happened was HMRC tried to distill this into guidance um, and they they got into a few difficulties there because, of course, guidance isn't law and people were following the guidance um, and following it quite literally as opposed to sort of taking it back to the tests in the common law. Mm. And so after there were some cases which highlighted this issue, the um, there was a decision made back in, well, the test came into effect on the 6th of April 2013, um, it was decided to try and distill those factors. For, so the, the test is similar to the um, common law test beforehand, but try to distill it into a more manageable form, which is why you sort of get these day counts and, and bits yeah. and pieces forming part of it. 
I remember very early on in my career advising people to do things like deregister with doctors and making sure that there's a clean break and sort of chasing shadows almost trying to ensure there was no there was no accidental um, connection that showed that it wasn't a clean break. And of course, that is a situation that we still have in relation to domicile, which we will not be covering today. But no, but it is worth covering. distinguishing that it is a, it is, a, is a different test and it has different effects. And that is, uh, instead of where do you belong on a day-to-day basis, where, are you, where do you intend to die almost? I think it's like, <laughs> that's a, which, which that, that's the summary that we're going to get today. We'll do that another day. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I have um, to, to just give some examples of what, what, is, what is in law around the world. I've, I've done some random selections of, if you remember we talked about last time, the, the wonderful OECD page. If you, anybody was really interested, you can just search for OECD tax residents. And then one of the very top results is a, a very convenient page, which has summaries issued by local, local practitioners uh, as to what the tax residents tested are in various countries. And I've downloaded some, some examples uh, just so we can show the different kinds of things that, uh, that countries are looking for. And the first one I've got is Lebanon, which is, um, which is, which is quite interesting because it ha- it's any physical person who satisfies one of the following. And the first one is having a place of business in Lebanon, which is, which is something I've not seen before anywhere else. Uh, the second is having a permanent home at his disposal, uh, which is his usual residence or usual residence of his family. So you could, from reading that, you could leave Lebanon and still have your, your, your spouse and children that you're supporting living in Lebanon. You would continue to be tax resident there, which I think is a mirror of the UK's family tie, isn't it, in its, in its sufficient ties test. Uh, um, it, it- it seems quite similar in its sort of aim and scope without having seen the actual legislation. Yeah, and uh, obviously we're not giving any advice on Lebanese law. And um, and then uh, anybody who's present for more than 183 days in any consecutive 12 months. So that's that 183-day test that we see in the UK law and that I know from personal experience is mirrored in Spanish law uh, and I think is in Portuguese law as well. It's very common throughout um throughout the world, 183 days is a benchmark. I've got the French test, which is um, individual. They, they, they seem to um, conflate the words domiciled and resident. And they, that, the listed test is that their home is in France, their main place of abode is in France. They carry on a professional activity, salaried or not, unless they can prove it is a secondary activity, or they have their center of economic interest in France. And again, Centre of economic interest is something that we see in the Spanish test as well. Obviously, living in Gibraltar, we, 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 we have a working knowledge, if not a, a qualified to advise knowledge of um, Spanish tax residence laws because people cross over the border quite, quite a lot. And then in Australia, they have an even more complex two-layer test. Uh, they have the common law test, which looks at um, where an individual resides, the intention or purpose of their presence in Australia, the extent of their family or business or employment ties in Australia, maintenance and location of assets and individual social and living arrangements, which I think goes back to what we were talking about, the pre-SRT UK test. And then they also have a statutory residence, a statutory test, um, if you don't meet the common law test, which is person's domicile is in Australia, 
unless they have a permanent abode outside Australia, they are actually in Australia for more than half the financial year. So there's the 183 days again, or the person is uh, a con contributing member of a superannuation fund for Commonwealth government offices, which who was of civil servants, I'm guessing, right? So those civil servants that go away to be, uh, to be ambassadors. So there are some common themes there, not always delivered in the same way. So if you're a Lebanese guy and you've got a business there, even though you don't live there, then you're in. If you're, but if you're an Australian, if, if, if you're considering the Australian test, you might be caught because of the location of your assets. All of these things are trying to, what they're trying to do is basically stop people playing games merely with the 183 days, aren't they? And the, the, yes, well, they're, they're, all, they're all slightly different ways, or they all seem to be slightly different ways of doing the same thing, which is saying, well, you sort of have enough connections here that you belong here, and therefore we should be entitled to tax you. Yeah. And so I think it does help to look at it in a, a holistic sense. Um, it, it can be tempting, particularly with the UK SRT, and I imagine any other SRT, to try and look at it mechanically. And from one sense, it's easier to understand it that way, but it is important to look at it holistically and sort of say, well, yes, okay, I have this factor, I have that factor, and sort of understand it like that, because one of the problems that we do have or that we face quite regularly is people want to cease to be resident somewhere, quite often the UK, because it has a high tax regime, particularly for individuals, and they think it might it will be quite easy to do that because they look at it mechanically. And so if you let if people do insist on looking at it mechanically, they can get quite a nasty shock when it comes to the actual practicalities of staying outside of the UK, particularly if they leave family or residences, etc., behind. And they might feel that they can slip in and out, but actually no, those factors will count against them and reduce the number of days they can spend in the UK. So yeah. it is important to look at it as a whole and think about what the test is aiming to achieve rather than just trying to game it because the idea is that you can't. Yeah, it's designed to stop you gaming it. And exactly. I would say to anybody who is considering leaving wherever they are tax resident at the moment, unless they're gonna re relocate their entire life essentially, it's very difficult to do. And a lot of people have been very miserable in a lot of places and ended up going back. I've had, I've encountered several clients who've come and said, we moved to Bermuda for the for tax and, and, and we weren't happy. And now we're going to move to Monaco. And, and like, no, the problem is that you've moved to a very small place. That's why your problem is you can't make yourself happy by changing the wallpaper. You need to be where you will be happy. And then, and then the tax will follow. And, and this, this is one of the, one of the areas where I very much use the phrase, don't let the tax tail wag the practical dog, because it's such a miserable way to live your life. If you're just doing it for tax purposes, and there's really no other connection, because you do have to sever connections with the place you're from. Exactly, because it isn't just a mechanical test. Exactly. It's not just about days. You know, you can't, you, you can't, um, you can't just count days and expect everything to be perfect. It won't be perfect. Un unexpected things will happen and you will be in the wrong place and then you will panic. And so it's about ensuring that the reality rather than the mechanical day count, I think is, is the best way to approach it. it. Absolutely. But what we'll have, what we've seen from all of this is that it's actually very straightforward to become dual resident and even possible to be resident in more than two jurisdictions. Exactly. It's more so. difficult, but it's certainly easy to be dual resident. 
And so this brings us back to a topic that we discussed last week, which is double tax treaties. Lots of jurisdictions have them with lots of other jurisdictions. And as, as for corporate residents, if you are dual resident, so say you're resident in the UK and France, then you will usually look to the treaty for a tiebreaker, which will tell you for treaty purposes in which jurisdiction you are resident. And this is more mechanical, isn't it, than it was for, for companies? Because I think that there are some, in let's use the model, uh, the model, the OECD model treaty, rather than trying to second guess what the 1927 version said that was signed between I don't know, Denmark <laughs> and the UK. Let's let, let's use the model. I think that it, it, you correct me if I'm wrong. You're the treaty expert, but I think that um, it's it's much more mechanical. There are there are there are there are hurdles to jump over. It's not just the the mutual agreement procedure that we talked about last time between the. No, yeah, that's it exactly. You've got a series of tests, and again, this is this is very susceptible to a flowchart. If 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 one is that is that way that way minded, um, so. If you're dual resident in the two countries that the treaty applies to, um, Article Four of the model explains when you are. It explains what your treaty residence is, um, and there are four factors that you consider. The first is um, you are treated as being treaty resident where you have a permanent home available to you, but that is only if um, you have. Either one is that's only if you have one permanent home. If you have no permanent homes or you have a permanent home in each state, um, that doesn't help you. Move on so to the next test. Move on to the next test. So, permanent home, just very briefly to summarize here, it's much broader than a house that you own. It could be a room in your parents' house. It's something that you have access to uh, that you don't have to sort of um, ask for permission to use. Um, that's available to you at all times, but it doesn't have to be a house. It, it could be any form of dwelling and it could just be a room in a house. So it is broader than sort of the house that I own in Country X. I think it's important yeah. to highlight. Okay. So that's our first element. If we have one permanent home, we're sorted. We know where we're treaty resident. If we have, we then have the other two situations, two permanent homes, one in each jurisdiction or no permanent homes. Let's start with two permanent homes. If we have one in each state, then you are treated as treaty resident in the state with which your personal and economic relations are closer. And that's referred to as your center of vital interests. Okay. Um, and is that a comparison between the two countries? Center of vital interests, I think is actually a really difficult test. And for a lot of people, it's sort of, it can fall out. Um, on, on, um, it, it often doesn't come to a conclusion. So you can't have two centres of vital interest, you can only have one. So either you have a centre of vital interest, in which case that determines where you're re treaty resident, or you effectively don't have a centre of vital interest in either of them and you have to go to the next test. Right, okay. Centre of vital interest, what you look at is you look at the factors that connect you to places. So it's a bit like you considering similar things that, that you might consider to the ties in the SRT. So you'll look at where your business is, where your job is, maybe where your investments are, where your family lives, where your social life is, things like that. It's quite a broad test. So it's much more um, social than the simple centre of economic interest that we talked about, which is all about money and assets. Absolutely. And indeed, there's... Um, it, with CBI, there's a question over the OECD commentary because the OECD commentary in the English translation says that personal acts of the individual are more important than 
non-personal acts but apparently and my French isn't good enough to, to have read this so I only understand it what the French commentary says amounts to sort of your personal connections are more important than your business connections so the commentary isn't clear there um, so you can see how you get a situation where it's very difficult to determine a CBI where say for example you have somebody whose family is based in one place but then they have a very successful business in another place and you're trying to balance the two um, it's straight, generally it would be straightforward for people maybe who've just moved for work or something and might still have a lot of connections at home. But in a lot of cases, it's not clear cut and one has to make a judgment call or determine that there's no center of vital interest and move on to the next test. The next test is the test of habitual abode. And we apply this in two circumstances. First, if you have no permanent home. So you remember way back in the first test, we said, if you don't have a permanent home, you have to move on. You don't go to center of vital interests for somebody with no permanent home, you go to habitual abode. You also go to habitual abode if you can't determine a center of vital interest. So habitual abode, I always find this one difficult because to me an abode is sort of the building you live in. But yeah. in the sense of the treaty, it simply means um, the jurisdiction in which you are habitually found. And this is a, this is arguably a bit more mechanical because it's where you spend the most time and you can include not only time that you spend at, spend at a home there, but also say time you spend on holiday there. It's okay. just time spelt, spent in that jurisdiction. So it is a bit more mechanical, but there are all sorts of questions which aren't, 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 aren't answered by the treaty or the commentary around the period of time over which you look at it. And that is, it's, it's habitual abode. So I think it must be habit forming. So if you maybe- I was spend... gonna say, does the word habit come in? So does, does that, that, incur, that implies a, a sense of regularity and of- Yes. Rather so than it... just random visits. It's like, I go and see my mother every Thursday, that kind of thing. Yeah, so I think a good, well, an example, possibly a good example would be if you had somebody who had spent the majority of their time in jurisdiction A for many, many years, and then in the current tax year, they spent the majority of their time in jurisdiction B. But the reason for doing that was sort of specific. I don't know, for example, oh, they had a dying parent there or something, but they were likely to go back to it. It's not a habit. So you yeah. can't look at it on a single tax year. You sort of have to look at it as a pattern of behaviour. So it's a, so it's so a simple secondment wouldn't make it an habitual abode, but if you had a business there that you operated and that went on for 20 years, then that could be more relevant. Yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely about the amount of time that you spend there, but you can't just look at the tax year you're in. You have to look at the whole sort of pattern of, of behaviour, in my view. Okay. Though I do know accountants who disagree with that. <laughs> yes, well, the, uh, lawyers and accountants disagree quite a lot. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> on whether we should believe what the guidance says. Anyway, so um, that's... So that's if the treaty tiebreaker. Is there any other fallback position after that? Or do we just stop? Then we go to nationality. So if you have, if if you if you can't, if you don't have, if you have an habitual abode in both states or in neither of them, which is an interesting concept, but if you can't determine habitual abode down to one place, uh, you look at whether or not they are a national. If the person is a national of both states or of neither of them, you're back to mutual agreement. So essentially, the fallback position of everything is that everybody will just sit around a table and thrash it out, or or not, or not. The case may be, in which there is there, there is uh, is there now in the new treaty model is there now a is there now a time limits? Have they introduced time limits there? Oh, I, I, 
I don't know off the top of my head, Graham. I'm sorry. Tell us all about it. I think they're pushing towards something more stringent and whether uh, and that um, that there will be more pressure on the authorities to resolve it. And the, and there's, there's there's methods of complaining about it if they don't resolve it that weren't necessarily there before. Yes, there is. It's not actually in the treaty. That's right. But that 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 has sort of um, certainly I know within the EU that's been that's been resolved with um, EU legislation recently. Yeah, but but essentially under the under the the older versions, you're entirely at the mercy of the authorities if you get to that bizarre situation where you are neither where you are none of these things um in fact to be honest if, if you don't meet any of those tests it is going to be quite difficult to work out where your tax residence yes exactly um yeah and they yes yeah, so article 25 includes a mutual agreement procedure so and article 25 um, is the tiebreaker for but that's the mutual agreement procedure uh, article, yeah. isn't it? The tiebreakers further off. Yeah, so the tiebreakers in Article Four, but then yeah. the mutual agreement procedure. If you get down to that very last tiebreak test, is in Article Twenty Five. Yeah. Okay. So now, just uh, one final thing before we wrap up, because I know everybody uh, everybody will have had enough of talking about residents um, for the rest of their lives after listening to two episodes of it. Um, this is not just about whether people are taxed on their worldwide income. It actually impacts on which taxes are applicable um, in some jurisdictions in this. So, for example, um, Gibraltar doesn't have capital gains tax. UK does have capital gains tax. And for individuals, though there are some exceptions around commercial and residential property, um, for in individuals, that's about CGT is a tax levied on people who are resident in the UK, isn't it? it with the exception of real property, it is only levied on UK residents. Uh, yeah, broadly yeah. speaking. Yeah, you were on the spot there for a second. <laughs> well, apart from some anti-avoidance regimes, but I don't think we want to go uh, into so the, the anti-avoidance regimes, are just, just, just to very quickly say, the, the big one is the five-year test, isn't it? You can't just skip out lose your residence and then skip back in and say, hey, I'm free of CGT. The, the temporary non-residence test. And when we were talking earlier about people who found it really difficult, I know so many people who've been caught by that, even knowing about it, they just don't want to live with the reality of not being UK resident. Yeah, so really, the, if, if, if I say one thing uh, on my last day on this earth is take proper advice about this uh, and don't leave yourself exposed to things. So uh, other examples of that is Spanish wealth tax is, is something that's applied to residents. And I think French inheritance, I'm not an expert on French inheritance tax, but I think that's applicable to people who are recipients of bequests and are residents in France. It's not the estate that char that's charged. So it makes a difference not only on worldwide income, but on ancillary taxes. Uh, and that's uh, ab ab absolutely, absolutely. So it can make a difference to, as you say, in the UK capital gains tax, um, it can make a difference to wealth taxes. The UK charges inheritance tax based on domicile rather than residence. Um, <clears throat> And that's a whole but, world of pain that we're going to talk about another time. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so it is it is an important concept. If you're in and out of different countries, then it's really important to have an idea of where you're resident. If you're not sure, um, just you, you should take good advice because you don't want to be paying tax in the wrong place. And I, I have I recently had a client who very sadly paid all his tax in one place that he thought was the right place in the UK and then the other country which said no actually you should be paying your tax here and went to court over that 
um, came and collected the tax again in the UK through the mutual agreement procedure. So, it, you know, he he got he got a double whammy, and by the time it was all sorted out, it was far too late for him to use a double tax treaty. Um, yeah. He couldn't reclaim his UK tax. He had to pay the German tax. It was a big old mess. And had he actually looked carefully at where he was resident, it wouldn't have happened in the first place. But he didn't take advice, sadly, until it was too late. Yeah, and obviously, just to just to, to finalise that. The fact that we've got all these information exchange agreements now, like our favourite, the Direct for Administrative Cooperation and uh, the Mutual Disclosure Regime, that residence is becoming more and more important. People are filling in forms that are asking them, where are they tax residents? They're giving tax identification numbers on. Getting that wrong can, can make a big mess when, uh, when things are reported. I've got clients who've had reports go to the wrong jurisdiction and then it creates a creates a potential investigation and unravels a whole thing, everything that, that, that's being done. And, and yes, and frankly, in those circumstances, even if you've actually paid your, all your tax in the right place and you've got it all right, you're still going to end up with disputes and hassle from a revenue authority because you've got something wrong and they want to thoroughly investigate it. And these things are never quick. Sadly, not in my experience, Graham, no. <laughs> so in conclusion, take proper advice. Um, tax residence is quite complex for individuals. Understand the rules in your jurisdiction. Don't assume that you know how it works because you know how another country works. And take advice at the, at the correct level. Not every accountant or advisor understands this. You need to seek out somebody who's a specialist in it because it, it's a very technical thing and getting this wrong can lead to um, consequences that last for years. Absolutely. Okay. Harriet, thank you very much for your time today. And I'm sure we'll speak soon. I hope so.